0: Well, we're glad that you have chosen to worship with us here at Prairie View Christian Church. We're honored that you're here this morning. We are in the third week of our direction series. And as we've talked about, the idea of this series is that we're revisiting our mission, our vision and values. And these statements are important because these are the kinds of things that will help keep our eyes focused on the goal. These are kind of like road signs that will help us make sure that we're not straying to the right or straying to the left or getting lost or getting distracted. Instead, we're focusing on the very thing that God has called us to. That's why we have these things. Now, when it comes to mission, what we're talking about there is what we hope to accomplish, the end goal we hope to reach, the thing that we believe God has called us to as a church and that he's called us to as individuals. We introduced our mission as making devoted, maturing, and multiplying followers of Jesus. That's the end goal. That's the destination. That's where we hope to go. Then last week we talked about vision, and if mission is what we want to accomplish, vision is kind of how we're going to do it. Because when the rubber hits the road, how are we going to accomplish this mission? How are we going to make devoted and maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus? And that's why we have the vision. There are are five big aspects of this vision that we've talked about last week. And they are in no particular order. It's not like one is more important than the other. They all have a role to play. They all work together. And those five aspects that we talked about last week are teaching the Bible, number one. Not opinions, not just self-help, but teaching Scripture. Because we believe Scripture is powerful. That the Word of God can change hearts and change minds the way I can't the way opinions can't, the way self-help can't, only Scripture and the Holy Spirit can do that. Therefore, we open the Bible every single week because we know it works. We then got to living in unity because our willingness to love one another, our willingness to work together, our willingness to serve one another like a family gives credence to our faith. It shows people that if all these people have nothing in common but Jesus can somehow get along... Maybe there really is something to this whole Christianity thing. Therefore, we live in unity. We then talked about loving our neighbors. As important as it is to be unified and love one another within the body of Christ, within God's family, it is just as important that we love our neighbors. That means anyone and everyone God places in front of us. At school, at work, at our neighborhoods, at the gym, we are called to love those people and serve those people in hopes that maybe one day they might ask why. We then have the opportunity to share our faith with them. We then talked about equipping one another for ministry. It is incredibly important, it is vital, that we as followers of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we lean on one another. We need each other for the purposes of encouragement and accountability and building one another up. So we gather together on Sunday morning, we meet in small groups, we pray together, we laugh together, we cry together. That way we can be sent back out into the mission fields that God has placed us in, wherever it is that we go. And then we talked about sharing our hope. You know, we live in a world with so little hope. You turn on the news, you open the newspaper, everything seems bad. Everything seems off. Therefore, we share the hope that we found in Christ because ultimately, eternally, the only place you can find hope is by looking at the cross. Every other source of hope, it might work for a little while, but eventually it'll fade. Only the hope that Christ offers lasts forever. Now, that brings us to where we are today, introducing values. And if mission is what we want to do, if vision is how we think we're going to do it, then values are kind of the things that just matter. Around here, That's really the best way to explain it. The things that are important. The things that we believe. These aren't doctrinal statements necessarily, but these are just things that we believe ought to characterize our church. And that brings us to our values. And once again, there's five of them. That's not on purpose. And these will overlap with parts of our vision. That's the way it should be. All these things are kind of leaning on one another and helping one another out. That brings us to values. Number one, we seek to honor God in all We do. That's what we're going to be looking at today in 1 Chronicles chapter 16. Number two, the Bible is our authority for teaching and practice. That goes back to one of our aspects of vision, especially. Number three, all people are valuable in God's eyes. Number four, we will be good stewards of all our resources. And number five, we expect both numerical and spiritual growth. Now, last week, as we looked at these five aspects of vision... We crammed all five of them into one sermon. Looked at five different important passages of Scripture when they all could have been their own sermon on their own. Well, with the values, we're going to look at each one, one by one, devoting an entire sermon to each of these. So again, we're going to be on number one. We seek to honor God in all we do. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. First Chronicles is a neglected book in the Old Testament. I remember when I was in high school, I was trying to read from the front of the Bible to the back of the Bible, straight through for the very first time. And I was doing really well. I had a pretty good pace going. And then I hit First Chronicles. And I thought, this just repeats all the other stuff I've already read. Why do I need to read this? And I almost gave up, but I pushed through First Chronicles. But I probably didn't realize just how great this book really is. We're going to see a little bit of that today. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of the Bibles underneath the chairs. And if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk and leave with that today. We want you to keep that. So 1 Chronicles 16, we're looking at this passage because this is a great example of a guy who knew what it meant to honor God. A guy who got this value of honoring God and all we do. And that guy is David. But before we actually get any deeper in that, I'm going to pray and then we'll dig into the background and we'll get into the text itself. So if you would, please pray with me. Father God, thank you for all that you've blessed us with. Thank you for all you've blessed us with individually, all you've blessed us with as a church. And God, I pray that as we try to discover what things should matter to us around here, the things that you would have matter to us around here I pray that we'll have open hearts, that we'll have open minds, that we will look to you for wisdom. I pray that you'll keep us on track on that mission of making devoted and maturing and multiplying followers of Jesus, that we'll take the Great Commission seriously to go out and make disciples. And God, we are privileged to be given that mission. We know that you're with us. We know that you've given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to accomplish that mission. And God, we are grateful for that. So as we turn to your word today, God, just convict us if needed, encourage us if needed, guide us if needed. Whatever each person in this room needs, I pray that your word will meet that need this morning. We love you. We honor you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, background of 1 Chronicles chapter 16. In the book of 1 Samuel, Israel, who are God's people, They have Samuel as their prophet. Now, these people, the Israelites, these are the same folks that were the ancestors of Abraham way back in Genesis 12. And then we see them freed from slavery in Egypt by Moses. We see them enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. But after that happened, things got a little bit hairy. Things got a little bit weird. They were kind of in a unique situation because they had Samuel, this prophet from God, who spoke on God's behalf, who would address God on their behalf, but they didn't have a king, which was certainly unique. They had guys called judges. They were kind of unofficial leaders, but they didn't have a set official 100% king like the other nations. Just Samuel, just the judges, and some of the judges were better than others. Well, as time goes on, Israel demands a king. There's a couple of reasons for that. Samuel's sons, they were the judges, and they were not good judges. They were wicked. They were bad. They were immoral. But then on top of that, the Israelites kind of wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to have a king. And so Samuel goes to God, and God says, Well, give them what they want. Here, appoint this guy over here, appoint Saul. Now, Saul seems like the perfect choice. To be a king, he's tall, he's handsome, he's strong. You know, the last election, this is not a political endorsement on either side of the issue. But when I saw Mitt Romney, I looked at that guy and I just said, you know, he just looks like a president. If I were casting a movie for someone to play the president, it would be Mitt Romney. He just looks like a president. But outside doesn't always reflect the inside. Sometimes appearance isn't everything. And we learn that with Saul. Because even though he looks like he'll be a great king, he looks like a wonderful guy, he's more appearance than substance. So as time goes on, Saul fails to honor God. He fails to really obey God. He doesn't seem concerned with honoring God as much as he's concerned with honoring Saul. So Samuel appoints another king, a king-in-waiting. A young man named David. Now, David didn't have the good looks. David didn't have the height. David didn't have the muscles. But what he had, Saul didn't have. And that was a heart that strove to honor God above all else. That strove to obey God at whatever cost may be. That's the kind of king that Israel needs. That's the kind of king that God's people want. But he has to wait. During this waiting time, there's chaos. Samuel and David, rather Saul and David, have this kind of love-hate relationship. One minute, Saul has all the respect in the world for David, and the next minute, he's trying to kill him. Saul grows jealous of David because his reputation continues to grow over time. And eventually, Saul seeks to totally destroy David. But God is faithful to David. God watches over David. And Saul and his sons are killed in battle. That's when David takes the throne. One of David's first moves is to take back Jerusalem, to go into Jerusalem, to bring Zion back to God's city. And then he brings the Ark of the Covenant in. The Ark of the Covenant was this relic that simply put was kind of the symbolic presence of God. The people believe that where the Ark of the Covenant went, God went Where the Ark of the Covenant went, blessing went. And so that brings us to where we are in 1 Chronicles 16. The Ark of the Covenant is returned to Jerusalem. And David and all the people are celebrating. And that's where we pick up in verse 23. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. That's going to be an important phrase that we'll look back on. The glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established it shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. If you were here back in the summer, Brownie points to you, if you remember this sermon, but we talked about Psalm 96, and the words of Psalm 96 are almost identical to the words of 1 Chronicles 16. And these words are just absolutely dripping with this idea of honoring God, of glorifying God, of worshiping God, and praising God. It's just all over the passage. But David says that phrase in verse 29, that this worship that he's talking about is due. do God. He says that God is creator. Look around you. God has created it all. He says the Lord made the heavens. He talks about the sea and the field and the trees. All these things are called to glorify God. In other words, David says, if you want to glorify God, if you want reason to worship God, look out your window, look around you, because that says a little something about God. If nothing else, it says that he sure is powerful. He sure is an incredible artist. And he's calling you and me to worship him. Give him the honor that is due him. John Calvin once wrote, The whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power. In other words, creation displays all those things. You want to see those aspects of God? Look around you, look at the oceans, look at the field, look at the trees. This honor, this worship, this praise, this awe, it is due him. And creation testifies to that. But then when David says that God is creator, he's saying something else as well, kind of by default. If God is creator, that means that he's also eternal. Because if God created everything... And that means he existed before everything. God is not like you and I. He didn't have to be created. There has never been a point where God hasn't been. He just always is. And that is worthy of worship. He is eternal. Everything around you, me, you, David, Saul, God existed before all of it. Finally, there's one more thing that David says about why our worship and honor are due God, and that's his righteousness. In those last few verses, David says that one day God is going to come, and God is going to judge the earth. Now, when you and I hear that, we think, judge the earth? That sounds dark, that sounds scary, that sounds intimidating, that sounds like punishment. Why would I celebrate that? Why would I look forward to that? Well, David says something in the next verse. He says that God will come to judge the earth, and even though that sounds scary, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The reason David can look forward to judgment, the reason creation looks forward to judgment, is the fact that God is good, that God is righteous, that God is just. He is more good and more righteous and more just than any of us could ever claim to be. And that's why, when it's all said and done, he's judge. We're not. But creation looks forward to this day when God's judgment will come, when God will put the world to rights, when sin will be no more. And that is to be celebrated, that is to be honored. That is to be praised. And this honor, this praise, this worship, we don't just do these things because it's courteous. We don't just do these things because it's nice. We don't just do these things because we want God to have a little bit better self-esteem. We honor him and worship him and praise him because it's due him. It is his. That's what it comes down to. Another point, let's look back at that verse, verse 29. David says that honor is due God, but then he also says something else. David invites us to honor God. He says that we should come to worship God, that we should bring an offering before him. He's inviting us into his presence. But as we read this passage about God being creator and God being judge and God being eternal, if you have any self-awareness, you might say to yourself, you know, who am I? To come into this God's presence. If he created everything. If he's all powerful. If he's all righteous. If he's holy. What would make me think. That I'm welcome in his presence. I'm not worthy. I don't deserve that. I could never meet the requirements. To come into God's presence. So how do we do it? How do we bring an offering to God? How do we come into his presence and worship him? The answer is. Jesus, that's how. Throughout the Old Testament, only certain people could come into God's presence. There had to be rituals. There had to be cleansings. There had to be sacrifices. But when Jesus is crucified on the cross, the curtain separating the presence of God from all the other people like us, that curtain is torn in two. Through Jesus' body, through Jesus' blood, sinful people like you sinful people like me, we get to worship God. We have the privilege, we have the gift, the honor of standing in the presence of the God of the universe and worshiping and honoring and praising Him. And it's only through Jesus. The author of Hebrews probably says it better than I can. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. We get to come into God's presence. We get to worship him. We have been given this privilege. He's inviting sinful, rebellious, impure people like you and me to worship him. He's inviting the woman who had an abortion earlier in life, who maybe hasn't gotten over that guilt. David says, come. Come into his presence and worship him. Are you unworthy? Yeah. But that's okay. Because Jesus' blood, it will cover you. David is saying to the man who did jail time, you know, you probably still think that you're untouchable. But guess what? God is inviting people like you to worship him. God is inviting people like you to honor him. He's inviting the person who stumbled in here a little bit late because they might have been out drinking a little bit too much last night. He's saying, it's okay. Jesus is. Can cover you. Repent of your sin. Submit to Christ. Come into his house. Worship him. Honor him. You have been given this privilege. Not because of anything you've done, not because you deserve it, not because you meet the right credentials, not because you've been cleansed by some ritual, but because Jesus has cleansed you. That blood shed and that body broken, they're sufficient. So come. Honor God. Worship him. Bring an offering. Come into his presence. When we hear that, how can we turn that down? If we as a church hope to honor God, I pray that we will never forget that our honor is due him. But I also pray that we will never forget that it is only through Jesus that we've been given this privilege to come into his presence to honor him. Finally, this idea of honoring God and all we do, by default, what it means is that there are some things that we can't honor. David says that more than once, God is to be feared above all other gods, that he's the only God worthy of worship and worthy of praise. In fact, David says those gods aren't even real. They're made of wood, they're made of stone, things that God created. God existed way before they ever did, and they really aren't God's at all. Honoring God above all else would mean that we must refuse the statement that sounds nice, that sounds good, of all paths lead to the same top of the mountain. It simply isn't true. There is one God, and he is the only one worthy of worship and worthy of honor. Second, if we hope to honor God, that means that there are things in this world that we must refuse to honor. David says that all the earth should tremble before God. It is all submitted to him. None of it is as great as he is. And you name it, wealth, sex, power, influence, success, none of that stuff is worthy of worship. There's only one person worthy of worship. And that's God, the one who created everything. And then finally, the third thing that maybe is the most difficult one, the thing that we must learn to not honor if we're going to honor God above all else, is we must refuse to honor ourselves. That one hurts. That one hits home. That one's difficult because we're all guilty of it. But someone who got this idea was Paul. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. As Paul is writing to this young church leader, mentoring him, investing in him, he writes in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul cites Jesus as his source of strength. Paul talks about God's patience with him, even though he was an insolent opponent, even though he was a rebel, even though he was a blasphemer and the worst of sinners. People like us, we might look at that and say, you know what? I have a lot in common with Paul. I've been a blasphemer, I've been an insolent opponent. I too am the worst of sinners. Paul embraced that. Paul wasn't shy about that, he wasn't scared to admit it because he knew that it showed God's glory. And it showed God's grace. And it showed God's mercy and patience. We can truly honor God when we worship him and him alone. And when we realize just how hopeless we are without him, that's when our honor can really start. That's when we come into his presence. That's when we bring an offering through the blood of Jesus and the body broken. God is calling you to honor him. God is calling our church to honor him. God is calling me to honor him. Back to David. Closing out, you know, David, even though this passage seems so heartfelt and it's dripping with this idea of honoring God and glorifying God, David, he's a great example, but he's not a perfect example of someone who always honored God. Because David, even him, there were moments in life where honoring God wouldn't be the highest priority. Where David would be a little bit more concerned with honoring himself. Where David would fall into this trap of buying into success and power and influence. But guess what? He repented. God sent Nathan to speak with David. And his heart and his mind were opened. Wow. I haven't really been honoring God, have I? That used to be a priority for me, but it's not really anymore. David repented of that. There will be times when we as people...